electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford. Deirdre Bosa is off today. This hour, the latest on the Russia-Ukraine crisis, the impact on today's trade, and your wallet coming up next. Later, have we hit a floor in tech valuations? One guest says it's time to buy back in on some software and cloud. Finally, so much for a safe haven, another volatile session for crypto amid all of these geopolitical tensions. And that is where we're going to begin. Our Elon Moy is live in Washington with the latest on the developing situation in Ukraine. Hi, Elon. Hi, Carl. Well, the White House is facing new pressure to block the Nord Stream 2 pipeline from moving forward as world leaders toughen their stance against Russia. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz announced this morning that it will pull the plug on the pipeline after months of resisting this move. He said Germany has reassessed the situation in light of Russia's deployment of troops into the Donbass region of Ukraine. Now, White House spokeswoman Jen Psaki said the U.S. has been in close consultation with Germany and that it welcomed the announcement. She also said the U.S. would take action on Nord Stream if Russia were to invade Ukraine. And two sources are now telling NBC that is how the Biden administration is characterizing the situation now, as an invasion. Now, the White House is preparing to announce additional measures targeting Russia today, but it remains unclear what the scope of that action will be. So far, it has stopped short of the full-fledged package of devastating sanctions that Biden has threatened against Russia. But on Capitol Hill, lawmakers on both sides of the aisle are now urging the White House to move quickly and in coordination with our allies. Already, we know the European Union is working on a package of sanctions, including limiting Russia's access to its capital and financial markets. And the U.K. has sanctioned five Russian banks and three billionaires. So, guys, we will learn more about what the U.S. is planning this afternoon. Secretary of State Antony Blinken will be meeting with Ukraine's finance minister here in Washington. And, of course, President Biden will address the nation at 2 p.m. Back to you. Uh, Elon, yes, uh, clearly a, a serious and unfolding situation. My impression is that this has been perhaps more than people were expecting, a, a gradual invasion and gradual sanctions. It's not as if all of a sudden Russia has invaded and the full sanctions are on, but it, it could end up there. Is that how it's being talked about in Washington? Yeah, absolutely. The administration was very clear that the moves that it announced yesterday in order to prohibit trade and finance and investment within those two breakaway regions within the Donbass, that that was related specifically to that move in Russia, Russia's recognition of those two areas. However, it looks like the administration is going to be moving to add some additional measures to that because we're hearing this ramped up rhetoric from leaders across the world. And so now the U.S. has to face a question, which is how much of that full-fledged package of sanctions does it roll out now and how much does it sort of leave in its pocket in case we see the worst yet to come? 
Yeah. Even the term breakaway, Elon, uh, getting scrutinized around the world today, given all the covert operations of the past few years. I appreciate that. Elon Moy in Washington. How should we be thinking about all this relative to stocks, specifically when it comes to tech? Our next guest thinks valuations in the sector have reset back to levels worth looking at. Joining us this morning, Stiefel's co-head of global technology, Cole Bader. Cole, welcome back. It's great to have you. I mean, to start with, uh, we're so far removed here from fundamentals. I mean, how are we approaching valuations given all of uh, the distractions lately? Well, first of all, thank you, Carl, John, for having me on today. Um, Let let me just start by saying uh, valuations have come down, no question. Uh, We're facing some headwinds. Geopolitical instability is not good for, uh, for stock valuations, obviously, in tech in particular. But we're coming off of a tremendous year uh, in M&A, in, in tech uh, raising capital, um, I mean, over $5 trillion in M&A last year, um, over a trillion of that in tech itself, and a trillion of, of M&A coming off of private equity firms. So I do think that the M&A trends and the tech valuation trends have come down, but they are going to. Uh, I see some stability going forward. As long as we don't have a global geopolitical war, as long as we don't have uh, you know tremendous negatives coming against us. But there's, there are a bunch of positives happening in tech right now. Right. Uh, adoption so- rates amongst consumers and businesses are nowhere but up. Um, we're seeing that the, the, the private equity firms have raised an unprecedented amount of capital, and they are going to continue buying both private and public companies. And as a result, I, I do see a floor happening in the public markets. Interesting. So you don't believe, for example, that higher borrowing costs or, as you say, uh, inflationary worries or geopolitical worries suppress consumer adoption, suppress corporate confidence. Those secular growth stories don't get interrupted at all? Uh, Listen, those are definitely headwinds, and we have already seen those valuations uh, have been hit over the course of the last three months in technology. But the secular trends are going to continue. Uh, Adoption rates by consumers, whether it's in auto tech, consumer tech, insurance tech, bank tech, everywhere are going nowhere but up. Uh, And while I do see some short-term impact on valuations and and potentially on the M&A markets, over the long term, I do see that those secular trends will prevail. Cole, you said as long as we don't have war. What's your bar for war? Because it looks like we have it. Um, (laughs) You know, the extent to which... The U.S. is involved, the extent of the sanctions that are involved and what the ripple effects of those might be is unknown. But it, to me, anyway, it looks like the base case is we have some uh, geopolitical conflict between some significant powers. Yeah, no, no question. Listen, I, I'm not a geopolitical expert by any means of the imagination. But the impact on tech, um, I do believe, is going to be short term. Uh, I do believe is going to be more uh, focused on the uncertainty of what's happening as opposed to the certainty of something happening. And my personal bias is that we're going to see sanctions as the response. Um, I don't know that for sure, obviously. But I, if it's sanctions, there'll be certainty coming back into the market. And over the course of the next several months and into the next couple of years, people will begin to focus back again on the fundamentals of the tech companies as opposed to the short-term geopolitical impact. So how granular can we get this morning? I was looking at a list of new 52-week lows this morning, and it includes Meta, <laughs> it includes Salesforce, it includes PayPal. Is that a decent uh, screen to start? So, listen, I, I'm a banker, not a research analyst, so I try to avoid talking about specific stocks. Um, but what I would say is I'm much more focused on the mid-cap and small-cap arena. Uh, and those companies in particular have been hit relatively hard over the last couple of months. Those are companies that I believe have tremendous capabilities going forward to generate earnings and generate growth, particularly on the revenue side. And I do think the current crop of companies that have gone public over the last 18 months are incredibly strong. 
um, you know, these are companies that have shown fundamental growth, good cost customers, good technology, and as a result, I do believe that that subsector in particular is going to show well over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. And uh, when, when you say they will show well, what particular metrics do you think uh, they're going to be measured by? Because if investors get a bit more cautious and perhaps aren't paying as much attention to the top line as they judge health, what do you expect they'll judge these guys on? Well, historically, tech has always been focused on growth, um, sometimes at the expense of, of profits. I do think we're going to con continue to see that secular growth um, amongst the tech companies. They've already faced these headwinds of labor shortages, of supply chain issues, and they're overcoming them. Um, and I do think as a result, we're going to see continued top line growth. And a number of the quality tech companies, particularly small and mid-cap, are going to show an uh, increased profitability. Those who have been unprofitable going, uh, historically going forward are going to start to show profitability. And as a result, I think investors are going to recognize the strength, the fundamental strength of a lot of these small and mid-cap companies. One of the debates is, uh, to the degree we focus on that part of the, the spectrum, is M&A and how companies uh, build operations to take advantage of these secular growth stories versus buy them outright using cash or stock. What's your view on that? So if you look at what's happened in M&A over the course of the last several years, yes, there's been a tremendous amount of activity amongst the, uh, the large cap players. Um, you know, obviously the Amazons and Googles and, and Metas of the world. But a lot of the activity has been amongst the smaller players. Um, what's happening is uh, the capital formation that has occurred, the capital that's been dispersed to private companies, to small public companies, who have found a technological ed edge, who have found the right IP, who have found a way into a consumer or a customer, that the larger cap players have been unable to do so, and they've got to play catch up. And either they spend the billions of dollars necessary to do that catch-up, or they get in and make an acquisition and do it uh, quickly. And so as a result, we're seeing a lot of these small-cap, both private as well as uh, public players, getting snapped up by the larger players. The consolidation that's occurred is tremendous in the mid-market. Um, I think larger players have, have realized that they're falling behind sometimes when it comes to the technology play. And as a result, they've got to buy quickly in order to catch up, because the build can take two, three, four years, and then you're still behind the curve when it comes to the, some of the smaller players. Yeah, that's going to be something to watch uh, on Mondays for sure, just kind of like today, uh, Cole. Really appreciate it. It's a, it's a difficult uh, roadmap right now, but uh, we're working on it with your help. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks for having me on. Now, we mentioned crypto earlier. So uh, whatever happened to the narrative about it being a safe haven in inflation and geopolitical uncertainty? Kate Rooney has more on a volatile session this morning. Hey, Kate. Hey, John, that bull case for Bitcoin not playing out lately. The cryptocurrency dropping below a key psychological level of $40,000 over the weekend. The big drivers, it's really similar to what's hitting tech stocks. Risks associated with Fed rate hikes expected in March and fears about the conflicts in Ukraine. Bitcoin, like you said, not really showing itself as an inflation hedge or any sort of uncorrelated safe haven in the face of all that uncertainty. As crypto prices continue to slide, analysts tell me the probability of a sustained bear market is going up. Glassnode analysts point out a few bearish signs for crypto markets. One, lack of overall network activity. They call this on-chain activity. You can think of it as money moving in and out of accounts. 
This week, activity has been, quote, languishing, which they say is not a great sign of demand for Bitcoin. There's also more retail investors now underwater. According to Glassnode, roughly 29 percent of all the supply out there is holding Bitcoin at a loss. And it's even higher for what they call short-term holders. That's basically investors that bought Bitcoin in the past five months or so. For that group, more than 54 percent are now underwater. That part of the market is also statistically more likely to sell Bitcoin. Finally, Glassnode points to an uptick of zero balance addresses, meaning over the past month or so, more wallets have been completely sold off and gone to zero. Investor sentiment also taking a hit. The Bitcoin fear and greed index is now back at extreme fear levels. That's about a 20 out of 100 compared to 46 just last week. And let's compare this downturn to some previous bear markets, which we've seen before in crypto. They say there's at least one bright spot at this point. Investors are now more likely to hold on to their Bitcoin and use derivatives to hedge rather than selling their holdings altogether. Guys. All right. Thank you, Kate. We'll see what happens if they actually need that money that they've got tied up in Bitcoin. Meantime, check out SoFi, the lending company announcing it is buying banking software maker Technicis for just over $1 billion. The all-stock deal, roughly equivalent to 10% of SoFi's market value. And just its latest acquisition and its push to become a neobank after acquiring community lenders Golden Pacific Bank Corp earlier this month. Shares there are down about 7%. Tech Check will be right back. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Time for a gut check. The Russia-Ukraine crisis clarifying the importance of cybersecurity as nations around the globe brace for some potential attacks. The rise of cyber attacks creating some market opportunity that J.P. Morgan estimates could exceed $250 billion by 2025. JPM launched some coverage on nine cyber names, cutting price targets for CrowdStrike, CyberArk, Cloudflare, and Zscaler due to multiple compression and downgrading Splunk to market perform as the company continues to face pricing difficulties and some shifting demand. Some argue, though, John, that that uh, demand could increase if this all continues. Uh, Indeed, Carl. And uh, speaking of sentiment, uh, eyes are on stocks in light of the growing global conflict surrounding Russia and Ukraine. Bearish bets are surging. The journal reporting that short sellers are adding to their positions against the S&P at the fastest rate in nearly a year. Here to discuss the Wall Street Journal's Gunjan Banerjee. Uh, Gunjan, is this really representative of an overall shift in sentiment about the direction of the market? We've been hearing about that in drips and drabs. Kate Rooney was just talking about uh, positioning in crypto. Uh, What's happening with, say, the big tech stocks? So when you look at the broader market, you can see the caution out there, right, with the volatility that we've seen throughout the year. But when you look at 
you know, certain pockets of the market, whether it's short interest or options activity, it seems even more bearish and people have taken an even more cautious stance and really slammed the brakes on a lot of the trades that flourished over the past year. You know, they're, they're turning to bearish put options on major indexes and, and high yield bonds rather than some of those bullish bets on individual stocks that we saw for a lot of the past year. So, Gunjan, what does this mean for, uh, you know, months ago you were telling us that we were in for probably more volatility than than uh, usual uh, because of the way people were using options, um, you know, the way uh, some retail traders uh, were leveraged. So uh, given that now there are these bets against the S&P, more short positions there, what does that mean for volatility overall? So traders I've been speaking to this year have pointed to options activity at times as a source of the volatility that we've seen in in major indexes and some of these intraday reversals. But I think the overarching factor behind the volatility that we've seen this year in individual stocks, particularly some of those growth names, has been you know monetary policy and and the growth outlook for some of those stocks, whether it's Facebook or Netflix or or Roku, because what we're seeing is that index options have kind of been surpassing some of those single stock options on, on meme stocks and tech stocks that we saw last year. Kajan, it really feels like um, it, what's, what's keeping a lot of strategists from uh, expressing more confidence is we haven't had what they would argue is capitulation uh, with each of these incremental bits of bad news or troubling news regarding inflation or geopolitics. There hasn't been that flush out. Um, why do you think that is and how do flows sort of explain what's happening to that mindset? There's some mixed signals out there. I think one thing that's really important to keep in mind is that the tenure, despite all the talk of changing monetary policy this year, is still around 2%. And that has you know, buttressed flows and, and led, to pe- led people to say, hey, the Tina trade, there is no alternative to stocks, is still alive. You know, there's been this huge exodus from bond funds and, and growth funds. And a lot of that money has gone to bunch of stocks and and value stocks in particular. So that's helped the market. And of course, some traders I was talking to about this bearish options activity and the short interest have said, hey, that's actually a sign that maybe things have gotten pessimistic. And, you know, we think these huge reversals might be a buying opportunity when people are getting so, so bearish. Yeah, I I wonder, Gunja, what are you hearing about that idea of the Tina trade. I mean, I get it given what's happened to bonds, but when you see what's happened to a lot of stocks and the the punishments that they've taken, I understand you don't want to hold cash long term, but the value of my dollar is not eroding as fast as the value of a lot of these growth stocks. So maybe there is an alternative after all. That's right. I mean, part of it is, look, the FANG trade has really crumbled. And when you talk about that volatility, look at Facebook, Netflix, stocks like Roku, are down a ton. But what I'm hearing is that people are getting more selective. You know, you've seen money leave those growth funds this year, and it's actually gone into value stocks, which which have outperformed this year. So I think when it comes to the Tina trade, what you're seeing is people just getting a little bit choosier about which corners of the market they might be going into. Um, Are you hearing about uh, what people expect to happen next, just in terms of what the next signal uh, might be for where things are headed. I mean, I understand that there's more bearish positioning, but whether it's geopolitical or uh, whether it's a, maybe even just a domestic uh, political, given midterms coming up, what are traders looking out for? 
You know, what I've been hearing from traders is that that's short-term noise. I think what remains front and center is monetary policy. Yes, the threat of war in Europe has stoked volatility in recent days, but I think the overarching factors remain inflation and monetary policy. Just think how quickly we went from, you know, zero to three interest rate hikes this year to maybe seven and talk of chatter of intermeeting hikes. So things have really taken a turn very quickly on the monetary policy front. And traders I've been speaking to have said that's what we are focused on rather than some of the geopolitical concerns. Meantime, Gunjin, there's been a lot of work uh, specifically at Morgan Stanley about looking for past analogs that would sort of explain where S&P is headed next. 2018 continues to come up, um, which implies a little more pain in March. And there's been some surprise at just how well these analogs are fitting right now. I wonder if that's taken some traders by surprise. That's right. I have been hearing a bit about 2018 as well. And I think what some of this recent positioning tells you is that people think there's more pain in store. I mean, I think that's what the options market has been telling you. That's what these these ramped up short bets are telling you. Um, I think investors are positioning for more volatility in the bond and the stock markets. All right. Uh, great perspective, as always. Gunjan Banerjee, thank you. Thank you. Meantime, markets are obviously moving amid the Ukraine crisis. We are approaching not quite back to session lows here. Dow's down 300. Tech Check is back in a few minutes. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Coming up, stocks are retesting the January lows. Is this the bottom, or could there be new major risks on the horizon? Our next guest says certain cloud names have hit a floor. That's next on Tech Check. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with Carl Quintanilla. Major averages were briefly in the green today, but fell quickly toward the lows of the session where we still are. The Nasdaq and the Dow both down almost a percent. The S&P just down over a little bit more than a half a percent. Biggest laggards on the Nasdaq, NetEase, Airbnb, Tesla, Netflix, a few big Chinese stocks sharply lower as well. We will get a check on what's happening live on the ground in Ukraine, meanwhile, uh, than the possible impact for the market. But first, let's get a news update from Rahel Solomon. Rahel. Hi, John, and here's what's happening at this hour. As you just mentioned, stocks are down on the day, but 
Major indexes are still well above the overnight lows, even after President Putin asked lawmakers to use force outside Russia. That move could pave the way for broader attacks on Ukraine. Oil and natural gas, natural gas prices are also well off their earlier highs. Shares of Home Depot extending their losses despite quarterly results that mostly topped estimates. Sales were up strongly, but gross margins fell as labor and transportation costs increased. Home Depot is by far the biggest loser in the Dow right now. Shares of Macy's up nearly 10% meantime before pulling back. Q4 profits blew past estimates with help from surging online sales. The retailer also gave strong earnings and revenue guidance for this year. And consumer confidence is down for a second month in a row, but the drop was smaller than expected. Fewer consumers are planning big purchases over the next six months, including major appliances, cars, and homes. Carl, I guess you need to find a home in order to buy a home. Part of the problem there. I'll send it back to you. We definitely need to build more. That's for sure, Rahel. Thanks, Rahel Solomon. We want to get back to the story out of Ukraine. The White House now calling Russia's actions the beginning of a, quote, invasion as troops move into the country. NBC's Aaron McLaughlin is in Kiev with the latest. And as quickly as we keep coming back to you, Aaron, uh, more headlines keep hitting the tape. Yeah, that's right, Carl. I'm hearing from my colleague in Moscow that President Putin is, has asked the upper house of Russia's legislature for authorization to deploy the Russian military abroad. And perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, this was approved. No details on what this could mean. However, it could potentially be just a formality or it could signal a yet another escalation in this crisis with all eyes being on the line of contact there in Donbass to see if Russian troops, when they get to Donetsk and Luhansk, if they will actually cross the line of contact contact into a government-controlled territory, which would essentially be a, a further act of war. In the meantime, uh, Ukrainians here in Kyiv calling for sanctions, uh, calling on the West to take action uh, because they know, uh, according to experts that I have been talking to here, in, in the way in which President Putin makes decisions is that he tries something, tests it out, see what the response is before calibrating his next move. So these coming hours are going to be absolutely critical. We've already seen sanctions announced by the German Chancellor. He's canceled the Nord Stream 2 pipeline project effectively. We've seen sanctions tabled by Europe, as well as uh, the United Kingdom. We're expecting sanctions later today in the U.S. All of this is seen here in Kyiv as absolutely critical uh, to determining what happens next in this crisis. Carl. Aaron, um, some headlines just now that, that Putin says the Minsk peace deal concerning those regions of eastern Ukraine uh, was killed off long before their decision to recognize those regions. And that, in his words, they were killed off by Ukrainian authorities. Uh, how important is that as he tries to dismantle some of these accords that were meant to stabilize the region? Well, it certainly is not a good sign. And there's a point of rare agreement that his actions uh, last night essentially killing uh, the Minsk agreement in the eyes of people here in Kyiv, uh, as well as Western officials, which was really seen as the main diplomatic channel to resolving this crisis, although there were serious problems with those agreements, different interpretations on both sides, essentially seen here in Kyiv as sort of a backdoor, for, a way for President Putin to be able to control the Constitution here and control a political move such as NATO membership going forward by declaring Donetsk and Luhansk independent republics, effectively scrapping those accords, though uh, he really has removed the main diplomatic off-ramp, which signals to many here in Kyiv that the situation is potentially barreling toward war. Carl.
Uh, Aaron, thank you so much for those important updates. Meanwhile, these tensions raising flags in the global supply chain, already exacerbated by the pandemic, could these issues get worse for some key commodities? Frank Holland is with us to break that down. Frank. Hey there, John. Aluminum and nickel hitting multi-year highs today. Aluminum up double digits. Platinum and palladium also surging. And when you look at these different commodities, palladium up 13 percent. They're all crucial to the tech and manufacturing supply chain here in the U.S. From car parts like catalytic converters all the way down to your iPhone, those commodities are also the most sensitive to the increasingly volatile situation on the Russian-Ukraine border, according to Interos, the supply chain data platform. The Russians produce 6% of the world's aluminum, 7% of the world's nickel. In 2021, Russian imports to here in the U.S., they increased 33% from 2019 levels. There are also more than 1,100 American companies with direct supplier relationships with Russian firms that will see a major impact if this conflict gets worse. Oil, agriculture, and especially tech and manufacturing would see major supply chain disruptions, according to Interos. Oil prices are also being closely watched by freight companies here in the U.S. According to DAT Freight Analytics, you see those prices surging. Um, and also, the supply chain platform Forkite says the conflict could disrupt rail shipping from China to the Middle East that goes through Russia, moving more freight to ocean uh, container shipping and moving container prices even higher. They're already up 131 percent year over year. Carl, that's the latest. Back over to you. Well, Frank, uh, Frank appreciate that. Uh, just real quick. John, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I wonder to, to what degree this worsens the already tight supply chain situation, or maybe if you have any sense, uh, because so many companies have had to rethink the supply chain, uh, have they factored this in and perhaps figured out workarounds? You know, I spoke to the CEO of Intero. She says, in the short term, at least, companies are going to uh, just try to work around and try to figure out what they can do with the commodities they have when it comes to things like palladium or platinum. But we may see less consumer goods or other items on the shelves. And then she believes it may also slow down the auto supply supply chain even more that's already reeling from a chip shortage where a lot of those automakers are starting to make their own chips. Long term, uh, she says that major manufacturers are going to start to look for, for alternatives if they exist or at least uh, alternative sourcing nations and sourcing regions. Frank, appreciate that. Uh, Frank Holland, keeping an eye on a very important wrinkle in this evolving story. Meantime, the IGV now dipping into the red, down more than 20 percent in three months. Our next guest says he believes there is a valuation floor where software and cloud stocks do become attractive to at least private equity buyers. Joining us today, GGV Capital Managing Partner Jeff Richards is with us. Jeff, it's great to see you. Thanks for the time today. Morning. One of the more constructive things you're pointing out is that the market is being discerning and sort of unlike prior periods, you do think there's a valuation where the buyers are waiting and, and when it gets there, they'll be ready. Yeah, as we've talked about throughout January, obviously, we saw a huge pullback in high growth tech. Uh, I think the one thing that's perhaps different, you know, quote unquote, this time is if you go back a decade ago or even two decades ago when we had the dot com crash, you didn't really have a floor for tech stocks. And what we see today is private equity firms like KKR or Toma Bravo or, or a bunch of international players who will step in and actually want to buy these companies if they trade below some nominal value. We saw an offer, uh, news come out about an offer for Zendesk, which is a, a terrific company in the, in the service desk space. So we, we think there may be a floor and you're seeing great names, you know, companies like RingCentral, JFrog, even Zoom and RingCentral that are trading below 10 times next year's sales with high growth numbers north of 30%. So 
Uh, I think a lot of folks who follow these companies aggressively are, are looking at maybe January and early February is a good time to be picking these up. As long as you have a long-term time horizon. Every time I come on, I mention that. You've got to have a long-term time horizon for these cloud stocks. Yeah, I was going to say, is price alone uh, enough to pull the trigger, given sort of uh, the unanswered questions we have uh, regarding uh, the backdrop of monetary, fiscal, geopolitical policies all around the world? Well, you guys have a lot of folks that are a lot smarter on those topics than I am. I think what we continue to see is really strong growth. You know, if you look, look at Amazon, AWS a year ago or two years ago was growing at 30 percent, sometimes in the high 20s. The last quarter, it was growing at over 40 percent. That's the largest player in the cloud space with $70 billion run rate of revenue. It's an incredible business. If it was independent, it's probably worth over a trillion dollars on its own. So as long as we continue to see Microsoft, Google, Amazon reporting strong cloud growth, that should bode well for the rest of the sector. And then another category that we'd highlight we think is interesting in the long run is fintech. As the world shifts towards more digital currency, obviously crypto is interesting, but even just small business payments, companies like Square or companies that are in the lending space like Affirm and Upstart, uh, I continue to be really bullish on those over the long run. Yeah, Jeff, what about the possibility, though, that um, as stock prices come down, that has a demand effect on top of the sort of demand sapping effect that rising interest rates are supposed to have when they're meant to curtail inflation. Might that change the calculus somewhat? Because, yes, we can talk about how quickly the hyperscalers are growing at the top line, but part of that is because their customers are spending at a certain rate, which might be because right, of, of the, the valuations that we've seen in the past. Yeah, it's a great point, John, and, and I think... You know, one of the things that's hard to get your head around, if we go back to 2000, and I was in Silicon Valley in 99, 2000, the majority of companies buying technology were other technology companies. I think what's different today, you know, 2022, 23 going forward is every single industry is shifting to the cloud, right? You've got healthcare, automotive, uh, government, you know, shifting their infrastructure to the cloud. Accenture came out with a study a month ago or two months ago saying that only 12% of international bank spend is in the cloud. So we're still in the early days of that shift. I agree with you. We could see short-term pressure uh, with interest rates going up, perhaps makes it, makes it harder for corporations to borrow and use capital that they might spend on CapEx. But um, man, I just don't, I don't see a scenario where we go back to on-premise software. You know, categories like cybersecurity are becoming more and more important. And then if you think about that fintech category, heavily indexed towards small business, which arguably has been depressed during COVID. You know, I'm on the board of a private company called Homebase. We saw 31% of, of small businesses had fewer worker hours between December and, uh, and January. We've now seen that go up 6% between mid-January mid to mid-February. So I'm bullish on small business. That should benefit companies like Toast, Square, Ring Central. Uh, so that's a category yeah. that I think maybe is underrated. I hear what you're saying, Jeff, but I also, I mean, we didn't go back to pre-internet, even though we really did have the dot-com bust, too. So even though we're not going back, <laughs> and I was in the Valley at the same time, too, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. newly minted Valley resident, I wonder, though, where does that equilibrium set in? Because sometimes it sets in way lower than people think would be reasonable. Well, look at the pressure on a company like Zoom, right? I mean, Zoom obviously benefited from the pandemic. People shifted to work from home, went to video. But as we talk about distributed workforces around the world, is that a trend that long term is going to is going to pull back? I don't think so. I don't think people are going to suddenly start going back into offices and, and hiring workers in their in their home base city uh, solely again. You know, that is a long term trend. You're seeing Zoom today try to trade it below eight times forward sales. So. 
you know, I, I just I think we're 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 in a mode where people are nervous, they're scared. Obviously, as you, you mentioned, you've got rate increases, geopolitics. But in the long run, how, how can you not be bullish on these categories? But again, you've got to be an investor, not a trader, to, to ride these out because the short-term fluctuations are brutal. I mean, we saw up, upstart go down 75% and then swing back up 35% when they reported strong numbers. It's, uh, mm. it's not for the faint of heart. Yeah. On that point, I was just looking at a, a, a bulletin this morning. The staff at the Wall Street Journal, Jeff, is told today that the company will not be mandating any kind of broad office return. Uh, instead, team leaders will figure out what the hybrid and flexible work arrangements will be uh, for their group. Uh, that's a remarkable turn for in a period where a lot of employers are setting a date uh, suggested to come back. So does that I mean, I, I'm just I strike, I struck by that, what it means for Zoom, what, what Teladoc's uh, retracement means for the future of office visits at the hospital and doctors and so forth? Well, you know, as you as you highlight, Carl, I mean, I, had a, I have a CEO, I'm on the board of a company, he said, we don't have a returned office because we don't have an office, right? They, they've shifted their model. And got, by the way, one of the other winners in this category is Airbnb. A lot of companies are shifting spend that they were pro- previously using for corporate office space to using on, on Airbnbs and doing offsites and things like that. So there's a, there's a bunch of unknowns, not to mention we dumped, you know, what, what is it, three and a half, five trillion dollars of stimulus into the economy over the last two years. I don't think we know how that plays out over the next few years. But I, I just if you've got the stomach to withstand some of the volatility we're seeing now, uh, I think myself, as well as a lot of other folks who see the long term trends uh, are, are pretty bullish on some of the names that we've mentioned here. You know, we haven't even talked about the cloud infrastructure space with GitLab and HashiCorp and Snowflake. I mean, these companies, when when spend goes up, they win. It isn't like they're going out and having to renew those contracts or sell new. You know, they are selling new customers, but their net dollar retention every year is so strong. Uh, I, I'm certainly encouraging folks that I know to, to wait in a bit if they can handle the volatility. Interesting. Uh, we appreciate uh, the advice and certainly some of the hard data, Jeff, that you always bring. Uh, very grateful. See you next time. Meantime, checking in on Chinese tech. Tencent falling this morning amid some speculation of even further regulation from Beijing. Company spokesman denies those reports, but Hang Seng remains down about 2% overnight uh, on the heels of these uh, moves out of uh, Ukraine. Don't go anywhere. Tech Check will be right back. Let's get a gut check on DraftKings. The stock did fumble following that wider-than-expected loss projection for 22. Shares actually in the green this morning after Friday's brutal sell-off. They're down 70% since the peak last year. Today, Wells keeps the stock on the bench, downgrades to equal weight, slashes the target from 41 down to 19. Wells says it is still bullish on the digital gaming sector, argues that the downgrade is company-specific, concerned by growing operational expenses and uncertainty in the path to profitability. Some of the numbers, uh, John, regarding uh, gaming at large, especially in New York State, have been surprisingly strong, uh, but it is expensive to be in that business. This is exactly the the sort of stock and situation, Carl, that uh, investors, it's gut-wrenching, right? Because a lot of what's in uh, DraftKings' uh, report is encouraging. You know, analysts saying, hey, it's a beat of our expectations and guidance for Q4, and yet you get people slashing their price targets basically in half. That's what a valuation reset will get you, I suppose. Meanwhile, the street throwing data dog a bone. Goldman adding uh, the cloud monitoring company to its conviction buy list, sending the stock 
up earlier this morning. Now it's down a little bit more than half a percent. Tech Check will be back in just a few minutes. Our next guest believes diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives in large employers are welcome and great, but the reality is it's going to take a long time for those efforts to move the needle. He is the CEO of Community Development Financial Institution Lendistry, which provides opportunity and progressive growth for small business owners and underserved communities. Joining us now to discuss, Lendistry CEO Everett Sands. Everett, good to see you. Uh, tell me what's happening as we prepare for a probable rise in interest rates and small businesses have been dealing with so much uncertainty, not only w with COVID, but just what the economic environment's going to be. Yeah, so thanks for the opportunity to be here. I think when we take a look at uh, small businesses, we take a look at inflation, COVID, and obviously possible interest over East and in terms of Ukraine, um, we got to first kind of think about where the businesses are coming from. So low access to capital, um, personal networks are generally don't have a lot of net worth, um, low home ownership, and less inherited wealth typically brings those businesses into somewhat of a financially precarious position as they're getting started. Um, industry has been trying to be part of that solution and providing access to capital. But I think there's somewhat of a long way to go. I actually think there's a way where some of your viewers and some large corporations can start to help out. What is that? Yeah, so great question. You know, we've been looking at this as kind of the great resignation, but really there's another side to this coin, and I'd call it the great business formation. If we look at the numbers in 2020, 4.4 million businesses were started. Um, that's coincidentally 25% higher than 2019. We broke a record in 2020. Then in 2021, 5.4 million businesses were started, breaking the record from 2020. So roughly we got 10 million new businesses that were started. I just saw something recently that said 20% of 2020 businesses were created by black women. And so if you add black men and other minorities into that, what you're seeing is that there's really a disproportionate number of these businesses started by minorities. Right. As we, as we think about generational wealth and we think about kind of opportunities for some of these large corporations, you know, in the past, as you mentioned earlier, kind of the DEI strategy or the supplier diversity strategy was kind of like this nice thing to have or great tactic. I actually think it needs to be a strategic positioning that needs to be at the forefront of their mind. But here's I mean, the here's the problem, ever, or at least one of them. Right. You know, it, it's one thing to start a business. So many fail right within the first couple of years. And that access to capital issue is a big part of the reason, even if yeah. it's a great idea. Right. Businesses, especially young businesses, need to be able to survive shocks. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and we're probably about to head into an environment of more of those shocks. So I, I guess it's why Lendistry's work is important. But what more can be done even in the near term? to keep some of these businesses afloat that are about to go through a rough time. Yeah. So I think the large enterprises could look at their HR strategies, which are going to be really focused on mental health and work from home and other things and start to do an integrated approach with the procurement side of the house who should be getting an influx of different uh, vendors, right? Because more businesses are being started. If they leverage that, then they can create a unique strategy where they're saying, okay, we're losing some things on kind of the HR side and the employee side. Let's shift it over to the small business side. To answer your question, revenue 
is part of the cure-all, right? And where Lendistry fits into that is we can provide mobilization capital, other organizations like Lendistry. So now you've got your access to capital solution mixed with the ability to generate revenue. The large businesses win because they don't really have this HR great resignation problem. Again, they're turning more towards a procurement strategy that can help them create a solution. I think the small businesses win long-term because what we're seeing now is these small businesses are a little bit different than some in the past. They've got the skill set. They've got the, the wherewithal. They've just made a decision for whatever reasons, personal, et cetera, that they're now going to create their business. They're going to do this a little bit differently. Hmm. Okay. Well, a bit of a, a specific a playbook, Everett Sands, CEO of Lendistry. Thank you. Thank you. That was interesting. Uh, in honor of Black History Month, we are asking some of our CNBC contributors to reflect on moments that shaped them. Here's David Henderson sharing a memorable moment with his father. My dad grew up in Birmingham, Alabama during the civil rights era, so I asked him, did you ever get to hear MLK speak? And he told me, I got to shake his hand. And I said, what? And he said, second best handshake of my life. And so I asked him, what was the first? And he said, yours was the day you graduated from law school. No one in my family ever climbed that high. That was my mountaintop. My advice to future leaders is to know where we've come from so you can help the next generation understand where we need to go. One more thing, Coinbase facing a bit of controversy after the success of that Super Bowl ad. CEO Brian Armstrong posted a series of tweets all about how the company created the ad themselves without the need of an agency, which only came up with, quote, a bunch of standard ideas. Only one problem, the CEO of the Martin Agency noticed and pointed out that they had, in fact, pitched the QR concept to Coinbase on two separate occasions last year. Then Coinbase's chief marketing officer responded, replying that, in fact, several agencies had pitched the concept to the company, but they ultimately went with a different agency, Accenture Interactive. Armstrong later amended his own thread, saying that he, quote, felt like we were all one team, so I didn't fully realize that outside teams developed the concept. Maybe Coinbase can develop some type of ledger to keep track of who deserves credit. (laughs) for their work, John. One thing we know, though, is that it was so successful, they did have to throttle some traffic. Too many people tried to figure out what that was. They did. That's a good problem to have. You know, it's funny. I remember a few months, a year or so back, Armstrong saying that he was going to start up with Coinbase, their own news operation about crypto because of the incomplete and inaccurate narratives about crypto. So it seems like he's got his own incomplete and perhaps inaccurate narrative about ad agencies here. Not only would an ad agency have come up with the idea, apparently several came up with the idea, and Coinbase can't even keep track of which one they actually ended up working with. Yeah, remarkable. Um, Overall, John, a bit of a tough tape. I think Tesla's interesting today, uh, trading in the low 800s, uh, below the 200-day for the first, actually only the second time since August or so. And overall, we're kind of revisiting early session lows. Uh, S&P 4320 is awfully close to the lowest close of the year at 4309. Let's get to Sully in the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.